This is Archive Atlanta, episode 139, ICE. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're talking about ICE. And I know I did an episode last week about cocaine, so you're probably thinking, oh, is this like a historical word for like some other drug? No, I'm talking about frozen water. And I have to share the origin story of this episode because it's pretty funny. Uh, so my friend Bill, who has a podcast called Marietta Stories, texted me one day and he's like, hey, you know, you should do an episode about ice. He was generally curious how it was shipped here, kept cool, all that stuff. And then one week later to the day, my favorite New York City history podcast called The Bowery Boys did an episode about ice history in New York. And so as we're all here, you know, we suffered through the perils of August in Atlanta. We're headed into the very early stages of fall. I wanted to do an episode covering the early history of ice in the U.S., how it went and got to Atlanta, ice kingpins, ice monopolies, shortages, and storage. To start at the beginning, the first recorded use of refrigeration technology dates back to 1775 BC, when the Sumerians constructed elaborate ice houses with shallow pools that would freeze overnight, and in the morning they could use it as ice. It wasn't until the mid-1800s that we began to harvest ice, basically taking it from frozen lakes and ponds in cold climates and shipping it to cities in warmer climates. In the Bowery Boys episode, they talk about Bostonian Frederick Tudor, who in 1806 cut blocks of ice from his family pond and shipped it to the island of Martinique. People thought he was nuts, sending frozen water to a Caribbean country that had no way to store it. But the idea of ice caught on very quickly, and by mid-century, he was selling 50,000 tons of ice all over America. He developed the method to harvest ice with horse-drawn saws, which lowered the price and made it more accessible in people's homes, especially in the South. And the icebox had been invented four years prior to this. I think it was 1802. Um, And that was by Thomas Moore. He was a cabinet maker who used it to transport butter from his home in Georgetown to market where he stood out as being the only person selling firm bricks of butter. This icebox technology was transferred to train cars, which could carry ice to warmer climates. Early Atlanta received ice shipments like other cities, but that changed when the Civil War started in 1861. Union blockades prevented natural ice shipments from reaching the city, and so ice-making machines were actually smuggled across enemy lines. I'll talk about those machines shortly. Two years after the Civil War, though, I found Atlanta's first listing for ice. A.F. Burnett and company were dealers in ice, fish, and other seafood operating out of the old post office building. And this was really common to see vendors who sold fish or oysters to also be the ones selling ice. By the 1870s, the major player in Atlanta was H.F. Emery, who operated the Atlanta Ice House. One of his 1872 ads reads, quote, who would use any other kind of ice when you can buy pure Crystal Lake ice at one cent per pound wholesale and one and a half cents retail? And so this is the first time I saw a mention of where ice was coming from. Crystal Lake is about an hour northwest of Chicago, Illinois, and its major industry in the 19th century was exporting harvested ice. It was stored in houses along the shore and then shipped throughout the year. And so from the mid-1850s until the advance of refrigeration, ice from Crystal Lake was considered among the finest ice available. Around the same time, there was an Atlanta ice manufacturing company that brought in ice via rail and sold it out of the depot at the bridge on Broad Street in downtown. By the 1870s, the company had new officers and it was manufacturing ice from a plant out in Iceville. 
Today, you would probably know the area better as Bolton or Riverside. Um, but 150 years ago, Atlantans would actually take train rides out to tour the factory and picnic in this wooded area. It was eight long miles outside the city limits, and the train station was named Iceville. And the factory here had machines that turned out five to six tons of ice per day using the Carre method. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, it's C-A-R-R-E. But Ferdinand Carre was French, and he and his brother Edmund invented an intermittent absorption refrigeration device using water and acid that basically was able to freeze water. By 1860, he had tweaked it and developed it into a U.S. patented machine that used boilers and ammonia to purify and freeze water. Don't ask me to explain this. I'm not an engineer. I'm not kidding. I looked at these like old patent photos. I tried to understand the process. I, I really did. <laughs> but I really, I really don't know how it happened. It just for me, it's a little more magical. But they took this water. So in Atlanta, they took this water from the east bank of the Chattahoochee. Um, Atlanta Ice put the it went into like a reservoir first, then they boiled it. And then once they took out the impurities and the minerals, they passed it through a cooler. And the factory ran all day and all night. And the ice making process took eight hours in the summer and four hours in the winter. By 1874, Atlanta was called an ice center, selling both natural, which is about 948 tons of natural ice and manufactured ice. There was a brewery, I think it was Fetcher and Mercer, that consumed 400 tons of ice alone, along with other businesses and then middle class and wealthy residents. And yes, early Atlanta had a number of breweries. And by 1879, Albert Howell sold one of his machines directly to Atlanta City Brewing, creating the first brewery and ice vendor in one. And this deal made a lot of sense because Atlanta City Brewing was the company's largest buyer, spending hundreds of dollars each month on ice. In the 1870s, John Beeth had come to town. You probably don't know him by name, but I bet you know his house. Arguably the most photographed home in Inman Park, it's the deep red Victorian on Euclid Avenue. This was John Beeth's house. Beeth was a prolific inventor who held numerous ice-making machine patents, um, I think about a dozen in 1890, and his machines were the only ones that used both compression and absorption and created ice from the center onward, which had never been done prior. He started his career in San Francisco around 1869. Um, his California factory was so successful that he moved from there to build factories in Portland, Oregon, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Galveston, Texas, New Orleans. Um, and by 1890, he's in Atlanta. He's managing Georgia Ice Factory and Alabama Street. And he's really wealthy. So, you know, I talked about this in the Inman Park episode, but wealthy Atlanta men built beautiful homes in this neighborhood. This was also the time that Atlanta got hit with its first major ice famine. At least that's how the dramatic Victorian papers described it. Um, the industry as a whole was dealing with carload prices and ammonia shortage. So they used ammonia in the process, and if they didn't have that, it was a problem. The city had three factories at this time, and they were producing two to 300 tons of ice per day, which was thought of as not enough to supply this growing city. And so the following year, Atlanta Ice Company was building a new plant along the railroad that was going to produce 65 more tons a day. By 1888, we had the Atlanta Ice Factory, which claimed to use the purest well water to make 15 tons a day and the newest boil machines from New York. In 1892, Atlanta, we had five companies in operation, um, Atlanta Brewing and Ice, Georgia Ice, Atlanta Ice, which was near Adair Park, Crystal Ice Company, and Standard Ice Company. 
Standard was run by Solomon Benjamin, who was a German Jew who came to America at 14 and into Atlanta in 1887-ish. He was the first man to build an ice factory in Florida, which sounds like it's probably hard to do. And Standard Ice really went on to become a mainstay in Atlanta's ice history. So it would buy up smaller manufacturers and really stayed in business longer than most. By 1896, we start to see the first companies that were manufacturing ice machines. So not just a factory making ice, but a place that actually makes the machines. Um, and then again, still the, the ice factories. When temperatures would reach 100 degrees, ice shortages and equipment failures plague the city. So everyone is mad. They're just mad. They're hot. They're mad. And the ice manufacturers like, look, when it's 80 degrees, you're using a third less than when it's 100 degrees. So we're not magicians here. Um, and Atlanta Ice, after this, this big issue they had when the temps went up in the summer, Atlanta Ice did add more machines to increase capacity in the future. In 1893, we heard the first mentions of the Ice Combine, essentially an ice company trust. Other southern cities had done this before, Chattanooga in 1890, Savannah in 1892. So Atlantans were really worried. Like, was this fair? Would prices go up for the poor man and down for the rich man? At this time, the city was using 200 tons of ice a day, made by only four companies. And so these mergers wouldn't happen just yet. The rumors weren't true, but they were definitely on the horizon. And by this time, ice was a really big commodity. So they had formed something called the Southern Ice Exchange, uh, which was made up of all the southern states, all the businessmen from there. And they would hold annual conventions. So they had a convention in Atlanta. Um, they discussed pricing, technology, topics like that. And pricing was a hot topic. So by 1900, I think two companies were effectively shut down in the city because the other ice manufacturers thought they were not charging you know, proper prices that they were charging too low prices. And by this time in history, freezers were really an established invention. And so the need for ice was more and more prevalent. In 1901, Kelly Cole, an ice company, was building a three-story cold storage and ice house that could hold 3,000 tons of ice. Um, Atlanta Ice was making extensive improvements to their plant. They were, you know, putting in new machines. There was also a lot of pushback, though. So a legal case against T.B. Brady of the People's Ice Company hit the court system, accusing the factory of dumping their dirty water into the street and making it impassable. And the company is like, hey, you know, we, we wanted sewers, but the city wouldn't build them, so it's not our fault. Uh, they said that they built a wooden conduit so they could just empty onto Thurman Street. And this street, um, essentially the area we're talking about is where Mercedes-Benz is or the Georgia World Congress Center. So this just, none of it exists anymore, but that's the area we're talking about. Um, now they did take the company to court and successfully force them to install their own private sewer. In 1902, after months of rumors, four of Atlanta's ice-making plants formulated a plan to combine into one. And so they reformulated the Atlanta Ice Company. And this new company's largest stockholder was Ernest Woodruff, future owner of Coca-Cola, who, by the way, also lived in Inman Park. So they had already purchased like two companies. They were in negotiations with two more. And by having these four plants operate as one, the idea was that production would be more efficient and the price of ice would be cheaper. They promised none of the factories would close. There would be no layoffs. And it wasn't quite that simple. So three years prior, New York City was dealing with a massive 
public issue over their ice monopoly. Um, you should Google it. I think it was called the Knickerbocker Ice Company. And Atlanta City's Council quickly brought up antitrust issues. So this is also the period in history. I think Sherman Antitrust Act happened in the late 1890s. So there was just, you know, people were just weary of this. The city's attorney, Mason, investigates and he determines that this deal is indeed a trust and therefore against the law. And so a special ice trust committee was formed in city council and they did their own investigation. In July of 1903, they determined that the new Atlanta Ice and Coal was providing Atlantans with the cheapest ice they've ever you know, priced and there were no complaints. So therefore, the company was allowed to continue in operation. The ice commodity business in Atlanta continued to grow into the new century. The Southern Ice Exchange met at the Kimball House in 1903, and all the men boarded a trolley out to Georgia Tech to meet their potential new hires. Woodruff starts shipping ice to other Georgia cities like Columbus, much to the panic of local manufacturers there. By 1910, an $8 million firm was organized from companies in Atlanta, Athens, Macon, Chattanooga, and Columbus, and then they called all of that the Atlanta Ice and Coal Company. The president was, of course, Ernest Woodruff. I haven't really talked about the people, like who used it, who made it, who delivered it. And the truth is, since the industry's earliest days, the position below manager and engineer were majority black men. And this is the case in most manufacturing buildings across Atlanta, but black men also made up most of the ice delivery wagon drivers, arguably the most important job. So you had to be on time and it was before the sun came up. And you had to get your deliveries done before your ice block melted. There was actually like a huge public discussion about this in the newspaper in 1919. There was like someone wrote an editorial that was titled like, who bears the loss when ice melts? Uh, I think it was like his name was Mr. Hodge. And so he's like, hey, you know, like what happens when the wagon takes off 2,400 pounds of ice, but it's hot out. And then by the time it gets to your house, 10 cents has melted off. Like who's covering that 10 cents? By the start of the 1920s, Atlanta Ice and Coal was building a $500,000 factory and changing out their West End plant from steam power to electricity. In 1925, a $2 million ice merger was formed called the Consumers Company, and it consisted of Ponce de Leon Ice, Southern Ice, uh, Consumers Ice, Polar Ice, and New Electric Ice. So, you know, just another basically trust thing. By 1928, the organization began to deliver all consumer ice through one single agency. It was called the City Ice Delivery Company. And so City Ice Delivery also opened an exhibit of unusual fridges along Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. I mean, at this time, the refrigerator was still kind of a newfangled invention. Throughout the Depression, city leaders fought any price increases, and at the height of the Depression, the ice industry employed the majority of Black Atlanta. In order to push sales of this new refrigerator technology, um, ice dealers opened a retail store on Broad Street. It was actually in the ground floor of the Healy Building, and they also had a store out on Gordon Street, which is today Ralph David Abernathy. Home ice delivery continued through World War II, but then ice boxes, or you know, we call them freezers, began to disappear from bigger cities by the late 30s. And it was really the 1950s was like the end of the ice box home delivery era because the latest refrigerators were making ice with ice trays. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's history with ice. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.